Once again, it's so good to see all of you. We pray the Lord will use His Word to get today to serve your heart and minister to your needs. I would ask you to take your Bible and one final time turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. This is on page 161 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Thank you so much. And uh, 161 on uh, the Bible near you if you did not bring your own copy of the Word of God. If you didn't and you are using one of the few Bibles, we would love for you to take that home with you and consider a gift from us and uh, continue to read the Word of God. We've been studying Deuteronomy in fairly large portions, uh, usually three chapters to seven chapters at a time uh, over the last several months. Uh, I think Deuteronomy lends itself well to that kind of broader overview than, uh, than say, a, a small section-by-section approach, as we often do through other books of the Bible. Uh, but in a basic sense, this book is uh, consisting of the final words of this man named Moses, who perhaps, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know well, uh, is one of the, the primary people that God used to lead his people uh, thousands of years ago. So again, this is the, uh, even the portion we're looking at today is the, the last words of Moses. But it is much more than that. It's a very long sermon in one sense. This book of Deuteronomy is in one way the gospel according to Moses, the way that he lays out the hope of a redeemer. Uh, who we know to be Jesus, Uh, Moses is serving as a pastor to anxious and fearful and needy people, but also to hopeful people who are anticipating going into the land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, other Old Testament leaders before them. So today we'll be covering the last four chapters of Deuteronomy. We'll begin by reading chapter 31, verses 1 through 8. This will serve as a kind of a jump-off point for us today into these last four chapters of Deuteronomy. Please follow along as I read aloud. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God Himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as He did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when He destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with his people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. What was the worst day of your life? For some of us, perhaps the answer to that question comes to mind right away. It's not hard because there's one indisputable day. For others, perhaps you have to work through that for a second and think, well, I've got two or three options, so give me a second. That's, I'm sorry. That is, that is rough. Uh, the Lord does often send, uh, you know, the saying, when it rains, it pours. Sometimes we go through wave after wave of trial. 
I have a friend, I didn't know him before this happened, but uh, know him somewhat well now. He's a pastor in another state, and one day he uh, went to uh, help lead the worship service at his congregation and uh, left his wife at home. She said she wasn't feeling well, and when he came home from church that afternoon, the apartment was mostly emptied out, and there was a note on the table saying, I am not a Christian, I don't love you anymore, and I'm gone, and I'll never see you again. It changed his life forever. I think indisputably that man would say that was the worst day of his life. The Lord has been gracious to him since then, but those who knew him well before that incident said he is a changed man. He is far more subdued. He's far more skeptical. And there are other elements that that have changed his personality as a result of that very difficult day. How will I ever move forward? Perhaps the way that you, uh, that's the question that you have to ask or have had to ask on your own worst day. We respond to life's difficulties in a lot of different ways as human beings, right? So some people respond with anger and resentment. Some with self-pity, like no one cares about me. No one ever cared about me. Or pride and reliance, uh, self-reliance. So the idea of, you know, I can do this on my own. I don't need anybody else. I never should have relied on anyone in the first place. Some people blow up. They yell at everyone. Some people clam up. They want to be alone. And we could go on and on. Maybe I have described you by now, maybe I haven't. Maybe other people respond with entitlement or overeating and avoidance or substance abuse or anxiety and despair. We could keep going. The bottom line is we as sinners don't do well when life gets hard. Typically speaking, we don't do well when life gets hard. And life often gets hard. For the people of God living around 1400 B.C., life was hard already. And it was about to get harder. They'd been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. If they had thought that was the worst thing they were ever going to go through, they had another thing coming. Uh, But uh, for those people wandering and looking for where is our home going to be, where is this land that God has graciously promised to us, when are we going to get there, as as children often ask, are we there yet? Uh, They were not there yet. And they had challenges behind them, and they still had more challenges coming ahead of them. And so what do those people need for those challenges? What do you need for the challenges facing you in your life now, or perhaps the, ones, the challenges that will come just around the corner? You need some perspective about who it is that goes with you. The message of the final four chapters of Deuteronomy is that God himself goes with you. Did you catch that when we read Moses saying, I'm not going with you, but let me tell you something even better. God himself is going with you. That's the message of chapters 31 through 34. God himself goes before you, and so your response then is to trust in him, to rest in him, to cling to him, to hold fast to him as he holds holds fast to you. So why should you trust God? Have you ever asked that question? Has anyone ever made you think about that question? Like Maybe they've told you over and over again you should trust God, but what really is it that makes me think that I should trust in this particular God? Moses lays out three reasons that make God worthy of our trust, or three factors that make God worthy of our trust. So these three reasons. The first is you can trust God because of his unchanging character, or in other words, because of who he is. And what I'm going to do over these next you know, 20 to 30 minutes or so is walk you through these, uh, these four chapters, but it's going to feel like I'm a little scattered. Uh, I've organized this more by theme and theology as opposed to by going 
you know, verse by verse. I think this passage just lays itself out well for this kind of a study. So uh, we can trust God because of his unchanging character, because of who he is. Unlike ourselves, who change based on the weather or the traffic or our health and comfort or the temperature in the room or a win or a loss, who is around us at the moment, who is not around us at the moment. We could go on with that list too. Unlike ourselves, who change all the time, the Lord himself never changes. And so Moses tells us about multiple aspects of God's unchanging character in these uh, final chapters of this book. So in terms of God's unchanging character, what do you need to know about him? In terms of what his nature is like, what do you need in order to be able to feel like you can trust him in the challenges of life. First of all, we can see that he is strong and able. We saw this even in the passage we just read in in chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. That is gospel. That is good news. You saw that that, uh, the people of Israel, and specifically Joshua, can be strong and can be courageous because God himself is strong. Multiple times, particularly in chapter uh, 32 and then again in 33, the passage refers to the Lord as being a rock, as being the rock. And it's typically in the ESV here, it's capitalized with a capital R. And the Lord even uses that in a a almost sarcastic way toward the people that uh, other nations were trusting in, the gods other nations were trusting in. Where is their rock? But it's not a capitalized R. The translators correctly uh, uh, understood that. Where is the one that they're trusting in? He's nothing compared to the true rock that we trust in. After uh, the sermon today, we'll be singing a song called Afflicted Saints to Christ Draw Near. And there's a phrase in that song based on verse 25 in this passage, which itself is a song, a blessing uh, from Moses to the people before he dies. And in verse 25, it says, Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. The Lord's going to sustain you. You will have the strength you need for every single day that God gives you. You will not die a day before God's strength for you runs out. He will sustain you all the way to the end. We also see that God himself, so he's strong and able, and I could give you multiple other references to that idea in these four chapters. But he also is everlasting. We see this in chapter 33, verse 27. We just sang these words a few moments ago, the eternal God is your dwelling place. He is the one who himself sustains you, who gives you a safe haven, and underneath, we could say underneath you, are the everlasting arms. That's not that the the arms are of everlasting length, it's that the arms are always there. He will always hold you, he will always embrace you and welcome you and hold you safely. So he is strong and able. He is everlasting. He mentions there he's eternal and everlasting in the same verse. Third, he's holy. And we see this in a number of different ways in this passage. And it's important for us to remind ourselves of this reality over and over again in Scripture that our God is very different from us. He has none of the sinful inclinations that I have and that you have. Listen to these words from chapter 32, which again is a song which Moses essentially sings or uh, hands off to the next generation of Israelites to say, this is what God has done for us and what he's going to do for us in the future, even though you are going to rebel even after I die, he says. But in chapter 32, verse 15 through 17, he says, but Jeshurun, which is kind of like a pet name for Israel, a nickname for Israel, 
Jeshuun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So in place of worshiping the holy, the one true God, you've turned against him, and as a result, you incur the wrath of God. Verses 48 through 52 Saying that very day the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan. This is God speaking this directly to Moses, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. And die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. I'll finish this paragraph here. You shall see the land before you. That's God's grace. But you shall not go there. That's God's judgment. They work side by side. You shall not go into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Why couldn't Moses take the people in? Because of his rebellion. Because of his Sin against the Lord, his high-handedness and his, his pride and wrath toward God. And so the Lord himself is a holy God. And this is foundational for us to get our arms around, because ultimately if we don't believe this, the gospel essentially is, is nonsense. We have to understand that God is totally different from us, and that he's the one who made us, and so we have to live in his ways, under his um, guidelines, we could say, under his rules. He gets to tell us, what truth is. We don't get to define truth ourselves based on what we think is popular or sounds better or sounds more reasonable. God himself is holy, and so he gets to define what holiness is. He does define. He is the definition of holiness. And so if we're going to have a relationship with this God, that means that we ourselves have to be holy. But most of the reactions that I described a few minutes ago that we tend to give into when hard things come in our lives, are themselves not holy reactions. So it's almost like when you put a tea bag into some hot water, what comes out of us when we are in difficult situations is usually pretty bad. It's not a good look for us when we see uh, how we actually respond. Which is just a reminder of our need for God to change us from the inside out. We can't just change our reactions. We need our heart to be changed. We need a new heart. We need to be able to see with new eyes and hear with new ears. And the only way that that happens is when the, God of, uh, when the, the Spirit of God enters into our hearts and gives us what the New Testament calls new birth. Or what Moses repeatedly calls in this book heart circumcision. A new heart that actually moves and breathes after God's own heart. And that happens through faith and repentance in Jesus. And if you've never put your hope in Christ today, or in your life, we would urge you to do that today. If you have trusted in yourself or in the way that you have lived or in some other religious system, we would urge you to turn in faith to Christ. And if you have questions about that, why we think that Jesus is the only Savior, why we think that Christianity, excuse me, Christianity is the only true religion, we would love to talk to you about that. 
either after our worship service or any other time. But what comes when you know that God Himself is holy and you don't obey Him? You actually rebel against Him. What you receive then is His wrath. And to us, this sounds like bad news, but it's actually, again, a foundational element of the gospel, a foundational part of our understanding of the Word of God. And we see this wrath in chapter 32, verses 19 through 22, as one example. I've already alluded to it in other places. But listen to how God responds to the foolishness and rebellion of His people Israel. The Lord saw it, their unmindfulness of the Lord, and spurned them because of the provocation of His sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Jesus himself quotes that line about the perverse generation that he was living in. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Here the Lord is prophesying that God's people will be kicked out of their land, sent into exile uh, by Uh, The people of Babylon, ultimately. For a fire is kindled by my anger, which is language very similar to Psalm 2. And it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. This is the wrath of God. And we need to understand that the consequences of our sin are the result of the wrath of God. And maybe you would say, well, I want to avoid those consequences of sin What the Bible would say is then avoid sin itself. Don't give in to sin and think you can kind of play with the circumstances or with the consequences, I should say. The way to avoid the consequences of sin is to avoid sin itself. And if you need help with that, we want to help you. We are all, Clayton and I as your elders, are sinners ourselves in need of the grace of God to transform our hearts, to continue to work righteousness in our own hearts and in our own ways. But if we or anyone else in our congregation can help you walk in the Lord's ways, we want to do that and offer you those resources. I want to encourage you, church family, to trust the Lord because of His unchanging character, but maybe what you need to do as like a a prerequisite before you can trust Him is grow in your understanding of who God is. And there are lots of ways you can do that. Obviously, reading the Word of God is one of those ways, and you can do that by going deep or by going wide. In other words, you can read one passage over and over and over again, or you can read a big chunk of the Bible at one time, and both of those are valuable for all of us. Similar to that, I would encourage you to memorize a psalm, maybe Psalm 46. It's 11 short verses. I'll be preaching that passage next Sunday. Or Psalm 103, if you want a little bit of a bigger challenge. It's a little bit longer, but beautiful truth about the Lord that will satisfy you and stir your your contemplation of the Lord. I would urge you as well, besides reading the Bible well, to read books about the Lord. And I just brought a handful here, as you would expect from me, and I just want to encourage you to read any part of any of these. And perhaps if you have one, you can just dive into it when you get home. If you don't, you can borrow one of my copies, or uh, perhaps we have some of these on the resource table. So I'm just kind of rifle through these. My this is a great book comment, I'll just say right now, for all of them, okay? Because otherwise I'll just repeat myself. So this is called Edwards on the Christian Life, Alive to the Beauty of God by Dane Ortland. This is in a series about various theologians throughout church history and their uh, walk with the Lord. So it's Trusting God Even When Life Hurts by Jerry Bridges, clearly an older version of that one. None Like Him by Jen Wilkin, Ten Ways God is Different from Us and Why That's a Good Thing. Really good theology in this book. Knowing God by J.I. Packer, 
That one's uh, quality. Uh, I'll see, there I go. I'm just giving you an extra line about every book. I didn't mean to do that. When people are big and God is small, overcoming peer pressure, codependency, and the fear of man. So this one specifically, if you worry about what people think about you, what this book, Ed Welch, is telling you to do is grow in your standing of who God says you are. You overcome the fear of man by growing in the fear of God. And so all of those books would be a valuable resource for you. I would also urge you to listen to good songs about God. Study the lyrics of those songs. What's the biblical basis for leaning on the everlasting arms? And just write that out. What's the theology that this song is teaching me? And find those scripture passages using various uh, technological tools available at your disposal. Every Christian song that you listen to, well, every Christian song, period, has theology in it. The question is, is it good theology or is it bad theology? Is it deep theology or is it shallow theology? I would just urge you not to waste your time on the songs that have weak theology or bad theology. Just go ahead and skip that uh, playlist there. When it comes time for you to find another church, which I hope for most of you is never, but I also understand that some of you are going to move away, perhaps retire elsewhere, perhaps go to college elsewhere, perhaps uh, marry someone at a different church. There are different reasons. I understand you can leave a church. But if you do, when you do move away to another church, I would urge you to find a church based on one that majors on sound doctrine. You want the sermons to be theological feasts, not something where you have to sort through the crumbs to find some kind of nourishment. You want a church with a clear doctrinal statement telling you what it believes. You want that place to be filled with doctrinally rich prayers and confessions of faith uh, that read Scripture in the service just for the sake of letting the Word of God fall on our ears, like Psalm 136 today. It is good for us to remind ourselves and to say over and over again with the psalmist, For the Lord's compassion endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. It's good to hear the Word of God and just let it fall on our ears. If the church you go to to join has resources out, make sure they're good resources. You don't need a cookbook at a church. Pick the church that gives you good theological resources, not their church cookbook. That's just a little pet peeve. If you want a cookbook, go to a bookstore. All right? And then... uh, Again, you want the music at that church to be loaded with good theology. This is why we sing the songs we do and why we don't sing or play secular songs. You don't need Taylor Swift songs in a worship service. Let me just say that nicely, loudly and clearly. Uh, I know of churches that have done that. So you don't need patriotic songs in a worship service. We are here to sing about Jesus, to worship Him, the eternal God. And so sing about Him and sing loudly. Find a church that sings songs that help you grow in the, tr- in the truth of God and in your trust in God, not just one that helps you feel good. A second reason you can trust God. So because of who he is, and then secondly, you can trust God because of his past performance, because of what he has done. So unlike with a financial investment or many other areas of life, whereas past performance, uh, where past performance is no guarantee of future results, With God, past performance is absolutely a guarantee of future results, of how he's going to act in the future. And so, what do we know about how God has acted? Let me give you four uh, different truths about his past performance at this point in Israel's history. The first is that he is your creator. And what Moses does here is he takes the pattern from Genesis 1 and essentially shows how God created uh, the world out of nothing, And then it says that his spirit was hovering over the earth. He does the same thing in chapter 32, talking about the creation of the people of God. 
In verse 10, he says, He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. There's nothing there. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters or hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them and bearing them up. And what this is doing is using vocabulary, like the exact same words from Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and just reapplying them as opposed to creation of the whole world, creation of the nation of Israel. And what Moses then does throughout uh, the, the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Old Testament, is shows the pattern of God creating out of nothing and then the people rebelling against God and God judging them, and then you repeat it. And so you have that happen with Adam, and then you have that happen with Noah, and then you have that happen with Abraham, and then you have that happen with Moses and the people of God, and then later on in the Bible you have that happen with David, and then later on in the Bible you have that with Jesus of the creating the new path, Except the pattern totally changes. All the other new beginnings were marred by a fall. Jesus does not fall. He takes the fall. He takes the judgment that we deserved uh, because of our rebellion. And so we see this path, uh, this pattern, I should say, that he is your creator. You should trust God because of his performance as the creator. He made all things perfectly. Secondly, he has already delivered you. There are numbers of passages, but just in uh, 31 verse 4, Deuteronomy 31.4, and the Lord will do to these enemies that you're going in to defeat, he will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And what Moses is doing there is saying, remember back in chapter 4, which granted they didn't have chapters then, but remember what I just said to you? He could say, God has already overcome these enemies. He's going to do it again. So you can trust in him. He has delivered you already. He has kept his word. And he has been gracious. I'll just read from chapter 33, verses 1 through 5. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun, with the people of Israel, in other words, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. It's just one way of saying God was gracious to you. He gave you his word. He led you. He gave you good leaders. And he goes on to say he's going to do the same thing. He gives you Joshua as a faithful leader to watch over you to protect you, and so forth. And so if God has performed this way in the past, how should you respond now? How should you think of God now? I would urge you to fight against the victim mentality. Like, no one understands how hard I have it. And look, I understand sometimes we do face overwhelming circumstances that are the result of someone else's sin against us. So let's take the example of someone who's paralyzed because they were in a car accident with a drunk driver. That just changed that person's life forever. At no fault of his own. It was because somebody else was uh, driving drunk. But how you respond to that is really important, really critical. And are you going to respond to an incident like that, to any circumstance that's hard and difficult and that you wouldn't have signed up for if you had a choice, are you going to sign up to that with a Look at how hard my life is, how mean God has been to me. Or are you going to look at that and say, this is the challenge God has given me. 
He spared my life. And so now my responsibility is to glorify him with every day of my life, even though my life is really difficult right now and probably will be the rest of my life. That would be a godly response as opposed to a victim mentality. You can respond to God's grace and by his grace with courage because he will give you strength in your weakness. Perhaps the problem is that people have sought your harm. Joseph would say the exact same thing in Genesis 50, and he would say, man meant it for evil and God meant it for good. And so I'm going to trust in him, even though this has been the pits. Okay, pun intended on that one, but that was really stupid. But with Joseph, if you're not familiar with Joseph's story, don't worry about it. But what I would say is you may, sorry, Caleb just now now gets that, you you may need to seek help in counseling. If you are going through a very deep trial in your life, find someone to walk through the deep water with you. Find someone who's going to listen to you and who's going to take you back to the Word of God. Not just listen to you and then stop and say, you're right, you really do have it hard. Find someone who's going to empathize with you, who's going to sympathize with you in your weakness like Jesus does, but who's going to draw you back to truth over and over and over again. And so this is the being part of a church family is there are people who love you and who want to help you and are there and are available for you. And so I would urge you to take advantage of that resource in our congregation. I would also urge you to review past blessings very specifically. One thing you could do is be very generic. God has been kind to me. Another far better option is to be very specific. This past week, here are five things that God did that I can clearly see His fingerprints all over. And I'm going to review these highs and these lows and the way he has preserved my my life and my faith. You can do this on your birthday or on New Year's Day or just pick a day and over and over again review how kind God has been to you. So for our anniversary every year, I give Clarissa a card that has maybe 15 to 30, depending on the year, uh, highs and lows. The things the Lord has walked us through that year. And what those things do is just remind us, you know, 10 years later, wow, I had forgotten all about that time when, and you fill in the blank, But look now at how kind God has been to carry us through that time. And you can do that in your own life. Just put a list in in your Bible or in a journal or any number of other places. But what you're doing is you're saying, there were floods that nearly swept me off my feet. But they didn't sweep me off my feet. The Lord sustained me. And so I can trust Him. His past performance tells me I can trust Him again in the future. So you can trust God because of who He is, because of the way that He has uh, worked as well, His past performance. And then third, you can trust God because of His promise of future grace. All right, Who He is, what He's done in the past, what He will do in the future. That's the third reason Moses gives these people to trust in God, because of His promise of future grace. We saw this, I'll read it again in 31 verse 8, it's on your bulletin. It is the Lord who goes before you. We sing this in the song, How Firm a Foundation, right? He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. He will be with you faithfully. He will forgive you. This is evident throughout the the passage in chapter 32, verse 36. It says, The Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. That's a way of saying, you're going to rebel, and it's going to be really bad, and then I'm going to welcome you back in. And I'm going to forgive you and bring you back. Third, he will avenge. Chapter 32, verses 35 through 41. This is the reason you don't have to avenge the hardships in your life. You don't have to feel like you have to get even with somebody. Romans 
12 picks up on this idea. Hebrews 10 picks up on this passage, on the language of this passage. But hear these words from Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. This is the Lord speaking. Vengeance is mine. I'm the one who will repay for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Who's he talking about there? Their enemies. The people who have sought to destroy you. You can trust in God because He will vindicate. Verse 36. The Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants when He sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then He will say to these other nations, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. It's as if the Lord is kind of sarcastically saying, look, you trusted in these false gods. Who are you going to trust in now? They're gone. They're dead. See now that I, even I, am He. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. The Lord is the one who repays. The Lord is the one who takes vengeance. So you don't have to. People have sinned against you. I'm not, so just be understanding that I'm not saying you should never talk about somebody who, if if someone has abused you, you should bring that to the attention of other people. All right, Don't take that as like a blanket. I should keep this to myself. But we all have people who are mean to us, who are rude to us, who are provocative in an in a anger-inducing way, is what I mean by that. Like they, they, they do things that are harsh and unruly, and the Lord would say, vengeance is mine. You don't have to be the one to get vengeance. And then the Lord is the one who will bring you all the way home. The promise of future grace, He is the one who will take you to the finish line, we could say. Chapter 33, verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. What's that sound like? It sounds like God's people are living safely in the Garden of Eden again. And there is no harm, and there is no danger, and no sin, and there is sweet fellowship between God and His people, and between God's people and one another. This is what God created us for, is sweet fellowship with Him and with one another. That phrase there, your enemies shall come fawning to you, you shall tread upon their backs, that sounds a whole lot to me like a lot of other Old Testament promises about ultimately overcoming evil starting in Genesis 3 and running all the way through the rest of the Old Testament and into Romans 16 and into Revelation 20, that the Lord will bring you safely home by defeating evil, by defeating the evil one himself. Moses ultimately did not go into the promised land. That's what chapter 34 concludes for us. We have there the death of Moses, him going up onto this mountain, him looking out and seeing the land that God has given to his people, but ultimately then dying there on that mountain. The author of Hebrews talks about this reality when he says in chapter 11, verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Christian, you are a stranger on the earth. You are an exile here on the earth. You are not home. So wait patiently with your eyes on the promise of eternal life. I hope you're familiar with the song, Be Still My Soul. I'm going to sing it in a few weeks, actually. 
But you can find uh, beautiful recordings of it online. You can find it in hymnals. I would encourage you to sing along with those recordings or just pull out a hymnal and sing that song. It starts off with, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. You know, it's one thing to say, like, a week, you know, fourth grader is on your side, so you should walk down that dark alley because you're going to be safe. No, it's very different when you say, the Lord is on your side. He's not weak. He's not indifferent to the danger that you are in. He is your protector. You can trust. That whole song is encouraging because you know who the Lord is. You should be still. You should have a calm peace in your heart because of your confidence in who God is. And if the Lord is the one on your side, well, there, now you have real reason for confidence and peace. So when you're watching your adult child make one terrible decision after another, or when someone you love says they want nothing to do with you ever again, or when your employer is treating you unjustly, or when a close friend takes her own life, or when you consider the absolute certainty of your own death, what should you do? Deuteronomy would tell you, remember that God himself goes before you. So trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed by the truth of your word and by the beauty of it, and particularly by the truth we've been confronted with and encouraged by today, that you are God alone. Even as we read in Psalm 136, you are the God of gods and the Lord of lords. There is no one like you. There is no one who remains undefeated but you. And so we rejoice that underneath us are the everlasting arms You are the eternal God who is our dwelling place and that you will take us all the way home. And so that until that day when we are in the promised land, in your presence, free from sin and sorrow, we pray you would uphold us. You give us eyes to see your glory and ears to hear the truth and to respond in faith. In Christ's name, amen.